You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. You've built up quite a little network of international contacts. However long you keep me and my friends under surveillance, you're not going to discover plots against you, Travers, because we want the same thing, the defeat of Grindelwald. But I warn you, your policies of suppression and violence are pushing supporters into his arms. I'm not interested in your warnings. It pains me to say it, but you are the only wizard who is his equal. I need you to fight him. I can't. Hello and welcome back to the 602 Club. So excited to be coming at you from Wizarding Paris today. I've got to say it looks great out here. And uh, I I think, yeah, I don't know about you, Drea, but I feel like Wizarding drinks taste better than normal drinks because giggle water is delicious. <laughs> <laughs> you have the giggle down very well. <laughs> very well. I practice it all day. <laughs> The drinking and the giggle water or the laugh? (laughs) I mean, both. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. Well, um, yes, welcome to the 602 Club. As you can tell, my good friend Dre Kaufman is here as we are going to dive into Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. Uh, My partner in crime over on the Owl Post podcast that we do on the Nerd Party Network. So who better to talk about this movie with than uh, a fellow Harry Potter, I'd I'd like to say, expert. So I feel so special being elevated to that level. Well... I mean, you should feel special. So um, quick reminder to everybody, you know, you can find the Trek FM shows wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, If you happen to be over on iTunes, give us a star rating review. It helps more people find the 602 Club. Uh, You know, there are a lot of shows out there that are similar to the 602 Club. So if you like us, let other other people know that you like the show uh, by giving us a star rating review, and and then we'll call you out on the show. Um, but really, you can find us where pretty much wherever you get podcasts. We're on Twitter at TrekFM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. Uh, we've got our listeners on the discussion group where you can talk to fans from all over the world about what's going on in the Trek FM shows. Um, type Babel into the search field on Facebook and you'll find us, or you can go to our website, trek.fm uh and that will any of the show pages there uh you can just hit discussion on the mini bar and that would let you in uh and then last but not least maybe you have some thoughts about the crimes of grinderwald or something else send them to us here at the 602 club go to trek.fm slash contact choose a show choose the 602 club and that will come to dre and i um this week at least uh, as we're talking about fantastic beasts the crimes of grinderwald which left me um, kind of in this place where we're 
we've got more beasts. And, you know, as we continue the story. We've got more beasts. We've got more fantastic. Yeah. We got more beats. We got more beasts. We got more beats. We got more beats. It's like like more fantastic beasts and more. Like, it's like, it's like, you know, the faster (laughs) and the furiouser. It's like like how that, you know, they should have just called it along those lines. It's like too fantastic, too beastie. That's pretty much what we do. More fantastic, more beasts. I mean, now we're just following the Fast and the Furious franchise naming scheme. Mm -hmm. So I kind of wanted to ask you, you know, because this is a much different experience, I think, for all of us as fans. You know, um, one of the things I was realizing is, you know, going into the Harry Potter movies, we all knew what the story was going to be for a majority of those films. And so and we already knew what the story was for each movie. Because we'd already read the book. And so there wasn't a lot of mystery with those at all. Um, other than, okay, what are they going to put in from the book and what are they going to take out? Or, or if you hadn't read the books, because I know there's several people who saw the movies. And yes, have not that's read the true. Books, that's true. You could still find the answer if you wanted to. Yes. Yeah, exactly. You could go online and figure it out very quickly at that point. And so... You know, this is a much different experience because it feels more like when the Harry Potter books were coming out and you had to wait. There wasn't anything, you know. And so uh, I kind of wondered for you, we got the second movie now, just how you were feeling overall as we slowly get to experience the this movie series in the Harry Potter universe as opposed to getting to, you know, see movies that we already knew it was coming. I think to some extent... We have an idea of what's coming. If you've read the books, you have more of the Dumbledore backstory than you got from just watching the movies. Um, and as seeing as it's the same creator, I assume she's going to stick true to her own sort of mythos. Um, so we do have some idea of what's going to happen. Maybe not like a clear cut idea, but we have an I- some things that were, I mean, at least personally, I'm looking for in these movies, um, particularly as it pertains to Dumbledore and his background. So from that perspective, I think we do have an idea of what's happening and we're getting some crossover characters, you know, in this movie in particular. I feel a little bit like I have an idea where she's going with it. And my husband and I have speculated um and i'm really hoping she proves me wrong um but i'm i'm sort of already assuming she's going down a more traditional storyline than maybe she did with harry potter so i'm sort of hoping she proves me wrong because if i go through the five movie series because it's five movies it's this i heard someone describe it as the uh the Hobbit movie series of the, you know, like Hobbit is to Lord of the Rings, Fantastic Beasts is to Harry Potter. As I get through these five movies, if I get to the end and I have predicted all of the major plot twists, I'm going to be relatively disappointed. Um, so I think it is similar to the books. I definitely felt like this movie was reminiscent of the fourth Harry Potter book, not just because we just finished reading that, (laughs) but um, also because I think some of the things that maybe didn't sit well with me in this movie are the same things that didn't sit well with me at the end of book four. So I can feel it's the same person. I can feel that same like writing and structure. Um, 
so I feel connected to it. But in terms of it, it does remind me of the books a little bit more. And it does remind me of reading through the books more that I can't just go and, and Google what's going to happen next and kind of ruin it for myself, which I, I actually would do. So, um, you know, that, that's kind of my overall take on wh- what she's doing with it and this particular franchise. I know there's a lot of people out there who are pretty upset and feel like she's just sort of cashing in. Um, but I kind of like when you create a universe and then you play in it beyond your main storyline. So I'm kind yeah. of trying to look at it from that perspective. Like we have some crossover characters, but I think she's just creating more and, and new in a world that she spent so much time and energy describing and creating. Um, so... Yeah, I really like the way you put that. You know, um, in in many ways, a, a good friend of mine, uh, Aaron, put it this way um, as we were talking. He's like, you know, I appreciate. He said that he really appreciated, and I come one hundred percent agree. You know, she's not writing these stories for the novice. You know, she's writing these stories for people who know the Harry Potter series. You know, and in many ways, um, the way that they do the Marvel movies now, they don't write them for you really if you haven't seen them. You know, if you haven't seen him, that's your fault at this point. Um, And I think she's definitely and I think that helps because us as fans, because then we're we're just enjoying um, the the story nature of it the same way we did with the books, where every time a new one came out, we just really dug into it and we're reading it. And then we had a ton of questions at the end and we couldn't wait for the next one. You know, I feel like she's kind of doing that same thing. And, you know, I, I think that. Let me put it this way. I don't think that the Harry Potter movie series, if the books didn't exist, would have done as well. Um, because the majority of people who saw those movies had seen, read the books, and therefore could fill in all the gaps, right? And, I don't and know so, if that's true, because the majority of the okay. people I know who are interested in the series have actually either not read all the books or read them after. I think that it drew a base of fans, and I think it being a book made it sort of a known thing when the movies came out, kind of like Hunger Games and Maze Runner and some of those other kind of young adult series that were based on a, on a novel and became a movie. Like I've seen, I saw the Hunger Games cause I read all the books, but I know that's not true to a lot of people, but them being books and being in existence and having that that like cultural fun, like familiarity i think helped it become more successful so i agree with that point but i don't think that majority of the viewers had already read the series um so i agree with your ultimate conclusion just not how you got there <laughs> you know i i that's interesting you know, I, I i think what I, I i think part of where i was going with that too is though that I don't think the Harry Potter movies are successful m- as movies as much because there there are too many unanswered questions because too much gets left out. Whereas I think that these are actually more successful as films because they're written specifically for film. Like everything you're supposed to know is in the movie, right? There sure. isn't anything, you know? And so I think in that sense, it's, it's, a, it's better... Uh, film-wise, and therefore that's something that's most interesting to me. And, you know, I, I think I said this in the first one too, just where we are in this is that 
I'm enjoying the fact that I don't know what's coming. Like every movie, I have to go in, I have to watch it, I have to digest it, I have to sit with it, I have to think about it. In the same way that I would do with one of her books when I was reading the Harry Potter series as they were coming out, I have to do the same thing and I'd have to devour the book and then I'd have to think about it and then I'd be talking about it with people. And like it, it, it's, it reminds me of the experience that I think people probably had when like, um, the uh, Empire Strikes Back came out, right? And like, it changed everything in the Star Wars universe. And like, the whole, oh, there were so many questions swirling around. You didn't know what you, it was going to happen. You had to wait three years for the next one to come out. Like, this is that same kind of experience to me. And I'm really enjoying that part um, because uh, to me, it's it's kind of fun to, to have a series in a world that, yes, I'm familiar with. And like you mentioned, having read the books, spoiler alert uh, here, um, Dumbledore and Grindelwald are gonna face down. <gasps> I'm just kidding. Sometime. I'm just kidding. Any anyone with any form of logic probably had already figured that one out. <laughs> they wait. Anybody pretty that's heavily watching on this, that movie. this movie, so that shouldn't be too much of a spoiler alert for anyone. Yeah, and so you know, I think um, there are there are a couple of things that we know. Um, I'm I won't say it here, just because people might not know listening, but I know where the relationship between Tina and Newt's going, right? So I know a few of those things, but what's great is that there's so much that I don't know about all of this that I think is really fascinating. And and like you were saying, it just gives you this opportunity to spend time in this world and get to know it more. And she gets to kind of fill it in even more, which to I. I love that kind of stuff. You know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of that. I, I, you know, with Star Wars and, you know, I've, I grew up watching Star Trek. And so, you know, getting to explore the universe that you've created more is, is exciting to me. And I'm with you. I don't think that I don't feel like this is just a, a cash grab thing. You know, I feel like she had a story to tell. She wanted to tell. And they're, you know, because of the success of Harry Potter, they're going to let her do it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the studio, it's about making money, but I don't think it's that way for her because I don't think she would tell a story that she didn't believe in because everything I know about JK Rowling, that's not who she is. Yeah. I agree with most of that. I do feel like one of the ways this movie felt like a book in that I feel like I feel like she put too much into this movie. It doesn't feel balanced against the last movie. And I, and I know she has to take some time with introduction in the last movie, but this definitely feels like her first couple books where she was trying to get her, her handle on what was happening and things just felt a little scattered and a little frantic. Like there was lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots in this movie. And it felt like she didn't know how to edit herself down. Like she has so much she wants to share in this story that she didn't know how to edit it down. And it sort of felt like to me, like they had made a much, much longer movie and they went in and cut snippets out because some of the transitions during scenes and pieces were very, they were left unexplained or confusing. There's one scene where I'm like, where did that character, there's a couple times where I'm like, where did that character come from? Um, All of a sudden, you know, for example, all of a sudden, right before they enter the the Grindelwald um, like rally, all of a sudden Jacob's there now. And we, we knew he was there, but we never acknowledged that he was there at the same time and with them and who was holding him. And like, all of a sudden he's just there and going through the doorway and you're like, whoa, where did, where did he come from? Um, or when the cat lion circus creature 
showed up on the streets of Paris um, and all of a sudden Newt and Tina and everyone were up on the street handling it. Like all of a sudden they were there and you're just like, those transitions were rocky and it feels like there's something missing from there. Like they had to go in and take out. Um, And so it just felt like it was not, it just felt rocky. Like she was struggling to create a screenplay from scratch without having that guide of her book. Like she's had in most of the other situations where she's kind of had this book and she can go in and sort of parse it out and see how it's going to play out before the screenplay gets created versus she's literally writing it from scratch and then turning it into a screenplay. So I think that that it didn't work super like there are parts like I'm willing to to commit to the rest of the series just because I do love the universe and I want to see what happens story-wise but this movie in terms of content was was challenging for me there was too much hmm interesting I, I would have liked to have seen some of this bleed into the first movie or some of it have bleeding into the next movie and I, I get why some components couldn't kind of translate, but she she introduced a lot of characters, some of which didn't feel necessary or are going to pay off down the road like they do in the books where she'll introduce a character in book two and then pay it off in book five of Harry Potter. But right now in a movie, it's really challenging to have people remember that and to follow that when it's not in written form or when you're not spending hours with, you know, uh, uh, like 20 hours reading a book or 10 hours reading a book. You have to, like, it just, it feels like it's, she's creating a story that I feel like is going to either be very, very tropey and cliche or going to be very difficult for me to follow. And while Harry Potter cut a lot of his books to make the movies, I feel like it was successful in at least streamlining the story it wanted to tell. It wasn't as thorough or deep as the books, but I don't think you can ever do a one-to-one translation from a a book to a film that just, it's very challenging. And I don't know that I can think of anything off the top of my head where that successfully happens. And I feel like she's trying to force a book into a movie here. So it felt forced. But I'm liking the story. I'm liking the angle she's taking and that overall approach, but the execution of it felt off for me. Yeah, I don't I don't think I agree with you. Um I didn't expect that you would, so <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um I I do think that there's a lot in this movie. I will heartily agree to there being a lot. Um But to me I I guess I expect that with her. And so it doesn't, I'm not surprised or, and, and I'm, I mean, you know, and, and just as you, I've read her so much, even, even her other works of fiction, um, her mystery series that like, I'm so attuned to her writing style that this just doesn't shock me at all that there's so much going on and I've just got to keep up. Um, it doesn't shock me either, but it doesn't mean that I thought it was executed well in the forum in which she's executing. I will say that always my first time of seeing a movie like this, especially when it's something that I've been waiting for, I really do have to see it again to kind of like confirm where I land just because there's there's so much writing on the first viewing. Um, just like even just do I like it, you know? Um, and so I will say it definitely flows so much better that second time. 
just because I know what's coming and then I can pick up all the things maybe I missed the first time. And so um, that was really helpful for me was was being able to get a chance to watch it again. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I I've heard other people say what you're saying, but I just don't feel it. And maybe I'm just weird, which is a good possibility. <laughs> well, I mean, I know in other times that we've reviewed movies that you and I kind of come at things like on opposite ends. Like we both either really like the story, but I don't like how it's done or you like how, don't like how it's done and I like how it's done. So I didn't expect you to agree <laughs> with where I was coming right. from. Um, but I think that sometimes is good. It gives kind of those yeah, parallel absolutely. sides and you kind of get to talk about it from all angles um i do like um i did like a couple of the subtle nods she put into things in harry potter in this one um in terms of you had to kind of be a super fan if you will um, you definitely had to be a potterhead to catch some of them um one of which i think is the fact that um, we meet nagini for the first time of the yeah. entire series here which is interesting and you're implored to find out where that where that that journey takes her that character because um that becomes a crucial part of future storylines um additionally we saw the elder wand which was very quick and very subtle but it was there yeah there was a couple other little nods mm -hmm. um including um, one of our, my personal favorite professors from the Harry Potter series. We ran into McGonagall, um, which was, yeah. which was really interesting. I mean, we expected to see Dumbledore, but I don't know that any of us really expected to see McGonagall. Well, and there, there's a, there's a good question because that could be the McGonagall problem. Um, because in the order of the Phoenix, which we're reading right now for uh, Owl Post, Owl Post, she says that she's been teaching at Hogwarts for 39 years. And I think the year that that takes place is 1996. So if you do the calculations, it, it, she's born most likely. And because of what we knew about her story, people assumed she was born in 1935. And well, so she should be teaching there in the 60s. Right. Yeah. And so it creates this conundrum, quote unquote. And so... Now, she has explained, or she has given McGonagall a lot more backstory. She wrote about it in one of her short stories books that she compiled the writing she did from Pottermore. And she does say that McGonagall grew up in the early 20th century. So, and that's the only date that she gives. Um, and so, to me, uh, you know, the fact that she also works for two years at the ministry, we also know that. Um, and right after that, she goes to teach at Hogwarts under Dumbledore, who is the head of the Transfiguration Department. Um, and so, honestly, if Rowling has decided that she wants to push back her character's birth, I'm kind of okay with that. Because, you know, honestly, it's something that a lot of creators have done, Um Tolkien literally rewrote parts of The Hobbit to make it fit with what he created in The Lord of the Rings. So, um, you know, it's it's not that abnormal to have a creator do this to realize they need something to shift. And and moving her age is is in the in the long scheme of things is really not that big a deal. Like, at least to me. 
So, um, and I, I don't think that because rolling doesn't do anything on, uh, just because that always has a purpose. Um, I think that she's going to be a character that'll probably be important later on. Um, especially maybe even reference to the fact that she almost married a muggle. Her parents had a struggling marriage, had a hard marriage because her the her father didn't know her mother was a witch until she started um, McGonagall. Uh, Minerva started, you know, showing signs of magic as a kid, which was a true shock to him. So I'm kind of wondering if that is going to she is going to play a bigger part into the rest of the series because of that ex, those experiences um, when we look at like the relationship between Jacob and Queenie. And so I just I for me personally, it's like if she decides, yeah, McGonagall is born earlier and is closer to the age of Dumbledore. I'm cool with it. I was trying to see and trying to think um, and it has me stumped a little because you know mommy brain and on vacation brain and turkey brain and all that um if whether he actually calls her by her first name or if he only refers to her by her last name he only calls her professor mcgonagall but in the screenplay and and on imdb it lists her as minerva because my thought originally as well as the credits for the movie i I waited for the credits just to see and it says minerva mcgonagall yeah because my original inclination when i heard that was like maybe her mother had taught at hogwarts because that would be about the right age right you basically just moved her up a generation if you will um because my original thought was oh maybe her mom taught and because her mother was a witch and her father wasn't Mm -hmm. and that whole thing so like maybe that's where that came from um but yeah and, and i mean they still could make that change if they needed to but i i think i think that sort of blew that theory out of the water with just the way that the screenplay and everything refers to her there was an intention to call her minerva even if it was never done in the film um so yeah i I think it will be though interesting to have her in there because of her similarities to the sort of underlying theme of what we're talking about because of this whole one magical parent one muggle nomad whatever you want to call them all eight thousand can't spells uh, apparently all the the thousands of names (laughs) apparently they have for the rest of us peasant i don't know whatever um (laughs) uh, fodder (laughs) not not mommy not wizard um but um you know it'll be interesting because we have several characters who have kind of uh, she's a parallel to that right just like harry was a parallel to voldemort right like there was a choice she had to make she could be angry about it or not um so similar story similar storylines and backgrounds and we'll, i'll be really interested to see kind of how all of that gets handled um but yeah she was an, a nice little cameo but um it is going to be interesting to see and to see at what point in the storyline we find her right like mm-hmm. is this post um, her fiance is this during or pre her fiance she sticks with the original storyline it should be post her fiance and she should be sort of in a grieving period um, or a jealous period um, but yeah it was a surprise character that I don't really think anybody saw coming um, or was expecting to to see here in 1925 1927 yeah, Paris 27 <laughs> Hogwarts yeah. but um, yeah, it was, it was definitely, it definitely could prove to be a challenge if she doesn't sort of address that. However, we also know that McGonagall is an expert with time travel and time manipulation that she, you know, taught 
Hermione how to use the time turner and she was yep. very cautious about, you know, the warnings and things like that. So there could be something to that as well. And we know that Rowling has played around with that in some of her other works. So it wouldn't be a terrible surprise that that becomes part of the explanation for, uh, for McGonagall. But um, I hope she doesn't change her too much because we share the same birth date not birth year. Yeah. Let's be honest here, people. I'm not that old. Um, I'm old. I'm not that old. Um, but uh, we share the same birthday, and I like to brag about that. So I hope she doesn't change her too much. So I can't brag about that anymore. So I did some calculations, and Minerva is around, is most likely 20 when she starts teaching at Hogwarts. And so I did some calculations that she'd need to be born in 19, uh, 1890 to be uh, a first-year professor when Newt is 13. And that is when the first flashback that we see takes place, is when they're 13. So um, that could definitely just be her first year teaching. Um, And uh, then uh, it also makes sense that the flashback when Dumbledore is teaching Defense Against the Dark Arts, they're 16. So that switch could have then taken place in the three years because um, he'd still be about nine years older than Minerva. And so, um, which makes sense because you always feel like Dumbledore's older than her. And so, you know, and, and in many ways, I really don't, I don't see the harm if she decides that for the story that she's telling here, she needs Minerva to be older. It's really not a big deal because it doesn't really affect anything else that we know from, you know, McGonagall in the book series of Harry Potter. Like it just doesn't. It doesn't change who she is as a character then. It just makes her older. Whatsoever. Yeah, that she's older. So, and, and again, Tolkien himself rewriting parts of his first book so that it fits more with what he continues to create later on, which it's just a pattern that many creators go through, which is they realize something doesn't quite line up, and so they either change it or they just deal with the inconsistency. Um, and so... You know, I mean, it's kind of like Star Wars, right? With George Lucas and uh, Leia saying in Return of the Jedi that that her mother was always sad. Like, how would she know? Padme died, you know, from what we see in episode three right after she was born. How would she know she was always sad? So it's like, you know, it's just one of those things. You just, if, if it's a continuing universe, you just don't worry about it. Um, especially since I just don't think this is a big deal. So... To me, like I, I've made my peace with it and I'm like completely cool with it now. Um, yeah, I think so. I think we'll see um, what she does with it. I mean, it's also a, you know, it's it's also a universe in which magic exists. And so for her to be older doesn't make it unfeasible. It's not like she's a human and right. can only live until like 80 or 90 and now you're asking her to be like 200 and you know like the, we've seen other characters and she's already sort of laid the groundwork for that. So um, I, I don't think it undoes anything that has already been done. So I agree that it doesn't do any harm but I do hope as a reader I get some sort of explanation for how she's rewritten it or why or what she wants to do with it instead. Right. And it wasn't just kind of thrown in as a nod and an homage. You know what I mean? Like it kind of wasn't yeah. thrown in thoughtlessly to this to be like oh it's Hogwarts so we have to have McGonagall like I'm hoping there's an actual purpose behind introducing that character and changing mm-hmm. that backstory. 
Otherwise, then that feels like an oh, uh, yeah. an unsatisfactory Absolutely. payoff. Yes. Well, and I completely 100% agree with you. And, and, you know, again, that's where I think having read her Harry Potter series, you know that she doesn't put things in by accident and just because, right. you know, like everything has a reason. And so I, I do believe and I I guess in Rowling we trust, right? Like I trust that Rowling is going to do what's right for the story here and, and that having McGonagall in this period is going to mean something in the next three films. And so I'm excited to see where that goes, honestly. Um, one of the things that I really liked about this movie and, and one of the things that I just like about Newt Scamander as a character is that I feel like he's the hero that we need right now. Like, he is the hero that um, we're so desperately in need of in this world. And I love it because of what Dumbledore says about him, which is um, you don't seek power, you don't seek popularity, you only ask if something is right. And if it is, you do that no matter what the cost. And I think that's beautiful because Newt kind of sums it up to his brother too, like, I don't do sides, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there's a real beauty in the fact that Newt does not just immediately jump to one side or the other. He is a character who sifts things out. He studies them. He seeks knowledge and understanding before he makes any decisions about anything. And like, that's just not something that this world does. And we see this, the, the wizarding world around him doing those things, immediately jumping um, to conclusions about things, immediately putting things in boxes, immediately saying, oh, this person is this and this person is this and putting them in categories. And Newt just doesn't do that. And I just, I really love that about his character. And I, I, I've, it's one of the things that I respond to so much about him because I, I, we just don't see it enough in our world. We see the exact opposite of this. And so I really resonated with watching Newt say, no, I I don't do sides. I agree with that it's a refreshing approach. Um, and, it, and it's different from her other sort of scenarios where you sort of immediately had to choose sides and things like that. And like the Harry Potter series, you kind of had to choose one side or the other because one was clearly evil and dark and the other one was not, right? Um, In this case where it seems different and the message that Grindelwald is selling is different from that of Voldemort. Um, It almost feels like Voldemort took the message and put it on steroids, which I think is the point. Um, (laughs) Yeah. You know, um, but... At the same time, I feel a little bit like his indecisiveness comes from a place of fear. And I feel like that's part of her story in this one is that he's sort of always been afraid to be seen. And he's been afraid of people knowing who he is and and being misunderstood, which is clearly happening throughout both of these films is they just don't understand him and that he's different because you're right. He doesn't immediately choose sides or show loyalties or anything like that. You kind of have to earn your way into him um, as a character, right? You see that Dumbledore has sort of earned his way, um, earned the loyalty and the respect from um, Scramander, but um, it almost comes from a place of fear. And I feel like for me, that 
that was really solidified at the end of the film where he stands and fights with his brother against the blue flame dragon of Grindelwald. And, and at the end he says, you know, I've chosen my side. Um, to me, that was just that pivotal kind of character arc moment where he goes from, I'm not going to be afraid and hide in the shadows and hope that I can just kind of ride this one out to I'm willing to stand up and I'm willing to fight. Um, so, so for me, I always kind of thought of it from that way and, and less of like, he's being a coward and more just like, there's something about him that just feels like he never fit in and he doesn't want to fit in. He just wants to be, he just wants to be in the shadows. He wants to be left alone. He wants to be able to do his thing. He never wanted, you know, he's similar to Harry in that sense in the beginning of the series where he never wanted any right. of this. Right. So that's how I kind of always took that is it wasn't so much that he wanted to think and make decisions from that standpoint, but he just, he just genuinely didn't want any part in this. Like this is not his battle. You know, he, he doesn't, it doesn't have to be him. <laughs> like, why does it have to be him? Um, and then at the end, I think he sort of accepted the fact that he has to choose sides and he can do something. And so he should do something and he's decided he will. Um, going from the beginning where they ask him to do something and he says no to the end where no one's asking anymore. He's just stepping up. Um, and I think that's a big arc for this film and how it plays out and how his character plays out. Um, but it is refreshing to not have someone just jump in as the chosen one, right? He really feels like he needs to wait and see if there's something he can do personally or if it can be somebody else. Um, so it's very different. I, I resonate with that too, because, you know, um, at the beginning he, he's, he's, he, and this is what I love about um, Newt is he he genuinely questions everything. Yes. You know, he even questions Dumbledore at the beginning, which I love. Mm-hmm. The fact that, you know, the almighty Dumbledore, uh, Newt's basically kind of raising his hand. Uh, uh, why can't you just do it? Why, you know, like, <laughs> why does it have to like, why do you need me? You know, uh, these kind of things. Um, and so what I, I think is really neat about Newt is I, I do think that there's a part of what you said in there. But I also think there is this thing about Newt where he is specifically always just looking to test each side the same way that he kind of tests his creatures, you know, and like not in a bad way, but like he he studies them and, and he learns about them and he makes observations. And by those observations, then he figures out, as Dumbledore said, you simply ask, is a thing right and so he's constantly looking and 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 taking in all the information and asking himself is this right you know and and Newt clearly has a very strong moral code of what is right and what is wrong um and that we should understand things first so they're not misunderstood and then we can make a good judgment call based on good understanding and so when he makes the decision at the end and he says, I've chosen a side. Um, one, he's seen the way his his brother came in, which he doesn't really trust his brother in this, but he's seen the way his brother came in. He didn't come with wands raised. He was trying to avoid a fight, and I think he's clearly chosen the side that he's also just heard exactly what Grindelwald wants. and He doesn't want to give it to him. Yeah. He doesn't want to be any part of that because it will destroy everything that he holds dear, which is because Grindelwald cares nothing for what what Newt cares for, Yeah, um, which is everything that everybody in the wizarding world doesn't care for, which is are the beasts, along with everybody else. Um, because you also know um, Newt's love for muggles, and I think this is what's so important about his relationship with Jacob from the first movie to this movie. It's like you see that Newt cares about all the things that 
other people don't, mm -hmm. even in the wizarding world. And that's what makes Newt pretty special. And if I hear one more time, somebody talk about how uh, Eddie Redmayne's performance is just awful and how we'll never look anybody in the eye. Eddie Redmayne even came out in an interview. And if you hadn't got that he's on the spectrum, yeah, I was going to say, then please, please just shut the hell up. Like, seriously, just shut the hell up because Eddie Redmayne is playing a character who's on the spectrum. And I think that's really important for people to have representation of a hero that's just like them. And I think it's an important character trait to portray because what makes him different on that spectrum is also what makes him able to do the things that like we were just talking about. Everybody else is choosing sides, but his unique perspective is helping him make the right choice. Yeah, for, I think that's for sure. Awesome. I was going to say much like the original Harry Potter series was sort of um, and, and had this underlying theme as de of depression as this deep dark mental illness. I feel like this one speaks to mental illness, but differently, you know, it points to Asperger's or autism as having this unique perspective and this new unique view on the world and this incredible value it brings to looking at things from a new perspective and to talking and asking those questions and being uncomfortable. And the fact that of the matter is that even in those situations where, you know, and I even said so in the first movie, it was hard to follow and watch and have him not make that eye contact. And I feel like in the second film, the behaviors were more in line with what you kind of expect from someone with Asperger. So I think driving that home a little bit more now, if I watched the two back to back, I think I'd be like, okay, I see where we're going with this, right? I get it now. I, 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 be I believe that I see why the character's that way. Um, and, and it also lends that unique perspective of like why he struggled in school, right? The traditional learning environment is not for him. Um, you know, he's going to have this a good moral compass that he just employs differently. It's why he can reach out to someone like Lita Lestrange and connect with her because she may not be on the spectrum, but he doesn't care about rumors and, and things that other people have said about her, right? Again, um, it's like she says in the film, you've never met a monster that you couldn't love. You know, he just doesn't look at them as monsters. He looks at them as just something. It's just what it is. Um, it's such a unique perspective to bring. And, and it is wonderful to see that difference on film um and, and to see that you know he's even struggled to talk to um tina in this one and he, you know he wanted to tell her her eyes look like that of a salamander right like who, who would think that you know that's just painting that different perspective and, and i love that she knew where he was going with that and how they kind of showed that it's because she read his book Right. And and how she showed that click that like she, mm -hmm. you know, Jacob's like, oh, no, don't say that. But then she's like, no, that that was warming to her and endearing to her, mm -hmm. which, you know, would only come from someone who can kind of understand him and how yeah. he thinks and how he operates. Um, so it's it's been it's been pretty wonderful. It also kind of levied in the he can't be bullied or pressured into decisions, right? Because that's just not what he responds to. And that's not how you're going to anyone who's dealt with somebody on the spectrum. You know, you just have to be patient and help them reach the conclusion themselves. And I think that all of that rings true with Newt's character. And that's how Dumbledore is really able to connect with him as he understands how to talk to him and he understands how he thinks. And maybe he can't predict what he's going to say or what he's going to do, but he has some idea of how to make a connection, um, which I just think speaks to that real depth and 
I just think the amazingness that we get from the Dumbledore character that I've just always loved and seeing it in a young age and knowing it's just developed over, you know, a hundred years is kind of amazing. I love, um, I love what you said there because I think, you know, again, it really just drives home this whole point. Like you said, Newt can't be bought or bullied into something because he does. Dumbledore is exactly right. He asks if something is right. And if then it is, he must do that no matter what the cost. And I think there's a real beauty in that as well is that Newt is a character who is defined by the choices that he makes. And it really reinforces the message from the Harry Potter series that we are our choices, not anything else. And and it's something that we see, um, I think, is really well played uh, in that moment where uh, Nagini is imploring Credence not to go. He's like, you, he knows what you were born, not what you are yeah. um, now. And that, that there's that difference there. And, and Lita then does that too. She shows by her actions that she is, she is not the person that everybody considered her to be. She is exactly what Dumbledore said she was. He never thought her an evil person or a bad person. And she shows that in her actions by giving her life to save two men that she loves. And I even love the moment where she says, I love you. And you know, she's saying it to both of them and she's saying it in different ways to both of them. And neither of them necessarily probably knows exactly who's getting what out of that, but it means so much to them. And and that sacrifice, that choice puts her on a side as well. And I think that's the thing that, she's reinforcing from the Harry Potter series, which is it is our choices that make us who we are. And those choices that define us are the ones to whether or not we are going to be selfish or selfless. And what we see in this film, as in the Harry Potter series, it's those that are selfless that we consider to be the good side. Um, And that's, I think, the side where Newt can say, I've chosen my side because it's the people who were willing to almost die to protect the rest of Paris from being destroyed. Um, That's what he wants to be a part of. Well, and I think, too, to some extent, um, that quality is mirrored in the opposite sense in Queenie, right? She is where Newt is not swayed by anyone or anything beyond sort of logical, deductive, and his own gut instinct Queenie is the opposite. She is easily swayed by anything or anyone. And she's the one who gave in. And she doesn't feel like she did it for, I mean, she did it for selfish reasons, but she feels like she's doing it for the both of them, for both her and Jacob, right? So, you know, she is the, she is the opposite and that she is highly susceptible to the, the sort of glamorous approach that Gwendolwald takes to his, you know, his perspective, you know, he knows exactly what to say to her to sway her and bring her to his side because he knows how valuable her particular talents are. Um, and he is a master manipulator and that's exactly what he's doing here, you know, and he cannot do that to Newt, which is why Newt is a good counterpart to this in this battle against Gwendolwald. And I think that's exactly what Dumbledore knows is that he is not afraid of Newt being swayed because there's very little to nothing that can sway him if he doesn't want it. Um, And so I think that that's an interesting sort of counterbalance there to show the strength of one and sort of the weakness of the other. Um, And and you feel for her and you, you feel bad. And it's a different way than you felt when someone would go to like Voldemort's side where it was pure evil and there was nothing to justify and there was no sort of 
way of explaining why you chose that path beyond just being kind of a dick. Um, so <laughs> in this sense, I think, you know, she's doing, she's doing what she believes she's doing for love because she's so forbidden to do that in this day and age in the world, seeing as that's just so anti, anti everything right now. Um, and, and, you know, the fact that she even went so far as to, to put a spell, an enchantment on Jacob at the beginning to get him to marry her. We see she's desperate and she wants to be normal and she wants to have a normal life. And it's the opposite of what we saw in Harry Potter where, you know, you have Aunt Petunia who desperately wanted to be a wizard. Now you have Queenie who desperately doesn't want to be a wizard. <laughs> so, um, you know, she just wants to love Jacob and be in love with Jacob and he is doing what he can to protect her. And it's heart wrenching and it, and it hurts to watch. And, and you know, that's exactly where this is coming from. And she thinks that he'll be able to deliver that to her. And as viewers and readers and people were like, that is not going to happen. And you can't believe that. And you know, no one could get through to her. So it was hard to watch. Um, I do have some theories on Queenie that I won't ruin for everyone, but if you want to reach out oh, to me. Oh, I want to hear them. Ooh, if you want to reach out to me afterwards, I won't hijack the podcast with my queenie theories, but okay. um, I will definitely be willing to share them with anyone who's interested, so. Okay, yes. Well, then we're going to have to talk because, um, no, I I really I really liked the way that, that Queenie at this moment is kind of swayed to Grindelwald's side for the moment. Um, and I really, I thought it was interesting because in some ways she is... Much like Voldemort's mother, who does the same thing to Riddle, um, to she, you know, uh, puts him under the spell, um, and they have a child, and the moment the spell is gone, um, the love was gone, you know, and, and whereas Jacob, it's not that he doesn't want to marry her, but he's also trying to protect the woman that he does love, like, if if he marries her, what will happen to her, especially in, will they, would they ever be able to go home to America? Like, there's all of these questions. And I think um, the choice that Queenie makes, she's representational of all of the other people who have many different reasons for joining Grindelwald. Yeah. Um, and And I think that it's good of rolling to humanize the other side. So like you said, it's not just that kind of Voldemort thing. Like if you chose his side, you were just evil, right? Otherwise, um, this is, is much more of a place to where we can understand how normal people could feel this way because they have like Queenie. Why would it be bad for her to marry a muggle? Like why, why should it matter? You know? And, and, and we see, and, and this is the thing on top of Queenie's choice that I think is fascinating is the way that Grindelwald's idea of the greater good is predicated on something that's already there in the wizarding world that he's twisting and making worse, which is this fact that we should be utterly separate. Um, and especially in, in, as we saw in the magical community in the United States, where they are utterly separate. We don't have friends that are muggles. We don't um, talk to non-muggles, basically, as, when we don't have to. And we definitely don't marry them. Uh, and so he is using that, I think, and he is taking that and he is just twisting it ever so slightly to make it, well, I, you know, you really, you're special 
and they're not like yeah. he, he, even his words are you know they're of other value they're of a different disposition they're you know magic only blooms in rare souls and so um i think it, we, i think that's so interesting because i i agree and i'm only gonna jump in here because i just want to add one point um before knocking you off your roll um i almost feel like this idea of keeping wizards and humans separate, I feel like the ministries and the general wizarding community and Grindelwald kind of have the same perspective that wizards should be separate. Only the wizardry or the ministry and all the wizards feel like it's to protect themselves, right? Because they're worried that they're going to be judged, which I kind of equated to like the gay rights movement and the fact that a lot of people stay in the closet and can't share that that thought because they're afraid of how they're going to be received by the general public. Where Grindelwald's taking the same perspective, but almost doing it in sort of a civil rights manner and in a racist manner in that he, that the non-muggles are not good enough to be wizards and they should be separate, but they should be over them. So it's like the same idea of what's already being ingrained into them in their communities, but he's flipping it and saying, you shouldn't be in hiding. You should be separate, but you shouldn't be in hiding anymore. He's taking this small, this same idea and just putting a new twist on it, like a new perspective on it that comes across like with this almost like forbidden racist type thing right like oh sure yeah if you're a a white guy you can you know have relations with a black woman because that's okay but not the other way around like it's just it has such like parallels to these varying communities of these people throughout history who have been sort of like judged and thought of as less and outcast by the communities and i think that that theme alone is something that resonates Culturally, it resonates throughout various decades. It always represents itself in a different way. Um, And I think he is capitalizing on that. He's capitalizing on it in a way that in current politics, I feel like people can relate to as well, at least in the United States here. Um, I just think that she's leveraging those feelings. And that's how she's having Grindelwald like sort of take over right? Like he's not going to ever say that they're better than anyone else, but he'll kind of walk his way around it. Like you were saying with, Oh, they have a different purpose, which really is like separate, but equal. They're separate, but you know, but not equal, you know, separate is equal. It's got this like very similar feeling to that. And that was kind of where I was feeling. And the same thing with Queenie and Jacob not being able to marry. It's like not being able to have, you know, a, a cross, race marriage right like that just is not okay in this time and age and i think that that's similar here and that they're they're treating them in that same fashion well and and it's it's interesting too because much of what he's saying could be a speech from hitler yes (laughs) like um and so there's so much of that in there because what he does what i thought was so fascinating is he starts off by talking about how he um he doesn't hate the muggles or the nomage, or the nomagique, uh, the you know the can't spells. He doesn't hate them, you know. But the and then he goes into it, then saying, but they are of other value. They're of a different disposition. And then he talks about how, like again, magic only blooms in rare souls, and we are basically made for higher things. Um, and so we who have magic are those who live for freedom and truth. Um, and then. After he's basically appealed to their emotions of like how great he is and how calm he is, then he shows them a vision of what 
will happen, which is World War II, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Because one of the scenes you see is the millions of Jews walking into concentration camps, which is exactly what he will do to muggles, most likely, if Mm -hmm. he has the choice. Um, But then he so then he goes from this kind of very mild, meek mannered thing to talking about how they're the enemy, their arrogance, their lust for power, their barbarity. So what he does is he then he appeals to their desires and then he stirs up their fear and emotion. And you put both of those things together and that's how you get somebody like Queenie with the appeal to desire. Um, and then you steer up the others with the 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 fear mongering. You put both of those together and you have the perfect storm of awfulness. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what Grindelwald is doing. And and I think it's fascinating because earlier in the the movie when they've taken over uh, the muggle's house and they've killed the kid, which is awful. Oh, my God. As I a mean, new parent, I almost couldn't. Uh, watch. I was like can't watch can't watch can't watch can't watch this is terrible this is terrible okay uh, i'm it almost was about to just, walk out this is bad oh <sighs> I, I it was a hard scene to watch but i think it it obviously makes him very evil but it's interesting that uh one the the woman that's with him the main woman her name is actually rosier you know that name from harry potter mm-hmm. um she talks about how when we've won, they'll flee the cities in millions. They've had their time. And Grindelwald says to her, we don't say those things out loud. We only want freedom, freedom to be ourselves. And it's this it's this thing that it, it creates the Grindelwald, which is he is the person who uses a bit of truth and wraps it in a bunch of lies. So it feels like something you should believe, but it's. And way down deep, it is just nasty, ugly, and horrible. And we see that because what he says is not necessarily what he does. And that's, again, that's that whole point. You're who you are by your actions. And the actions we see him take, he's an awful human being. Well, it's just, it it has, it's one of those things where, like, I feel like from a Newt perspective or even a Tina perspective, it's too good to be true, right? Right. It's right. it's just one of those things where like what he's selling you, you have to stop and ask yourself, is this really possible? And if it is, what's the sacrifice that is going to be made by others in order to get that? And that's where you sort of walk into that overall concept she addresses here, um, which I I, I want to count. I want to know when people listen to this podcast, who else sort of had this moment um, of the greater good, right? Because that plays throughout here. Um and they actually say at some point, you know, it's for the greater good. And I instantly went to um, Hot Fuzz and, and that movie where they're like, the greater good <laughs> at the end. That's instantly my husband and I looked at each other and we're like, the greater good. Um, but yeah, I mean, it still plays into that, right? Yeah, just because you can selfishly accomplish this freedom, what sacrifice has to come with that? And why can't we do this in a, a peaceful manner and, and in a, a conversational manner? Like there's a reason why wizards are hiding. Um, and it's because the muggles just can't handle it. You can't force them to handle it appropriately. Otherwise, you're going to end up with, you know, the vision that you have there, which is not, like you said, it's not wizards and witches that are walking in in that scene that's that's going to be non-magis and muggles um or in the case of reality jews so well i think it's really interesting too because and and this is something that we see on the other side where the ministry response um has reinforced these feelings of oppression 
Um, and they've been going at this this whole thing with this end justify the means philosophy, but just from a different angle. And they're creating those lines in the stand instead of what, again, what this is what makes Newt the hero of this series is that he's the one who looks for understanding first and then acts. And so everybody here is just acting out of emotion. And Dumbledore even warns Travers. He says, you know... I, these policies of suppression and violence, they're pushing supporters into his arms. You're actually playing in to exactly what he wants, which I thought was great because we get that turn for Theseus, his uh, Newt's brother, where he says, it's not illegal to listen to him. Do not make our, do not make us what they say we are here. Yeah. And that's exactly what Happens. this whole thing has been about because, and this is, this is kind of the, the, the creepiness of, of Grindelwald is that he has set all of this up and in many ways he's like the Palpatine of this series because he wants that to happen. Mm -hmm. He needs that to happen and he knows it's going to happen because one of those oars is going to strike out and he's going to kill somebody and it's it's going to create the narrative then that he needs to continue forward um, and then he can rail against you know how awful they are. And I just, I think... What's like you were saying there, it's so fascinating because you can see you can see current political climate here, but you can also see the history of political climates from the 20th century and and before all wrapped up into this character. And I think that's one of the things that makes, again, you know, the Harry Potter series so good. And I think that's what's making this series so good is that you know, she's not just couching it in today. But she is using historical reference here that makes this something that will last forever as a story. And that's really helpful. Um, but it doesn't make it any less scary. It's also, I think, something, the fact that it's not so cut and dry makes it even scarier, right? Like, I, nobody, I don't I don't think anybody in, in either side in any way would say that wizards shouldn't have freedom, right? Like no one's going to fight that point, but it's a matter of how it's attained and how it's, how it's done. And, and that's that it's the approach and the execution that the ministry, you know, that people take issue with and, and the, in the manner and not the theory itself. So unlike the original Harry Potter series where there's a clear right and wrong, they know this is wrong, but convincing people it's wrong is much, much harder. Um, and exposing Grindelwald for who he really is and what his true intentions are is very difficult when you have such a manipulative and strategic um, villain. He's he set up the chessboard. He's moved pieces. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows how to get the checkmate. He just has to make sure that the per correct pieces are manipulated the way he needs them to do in order to accomplish that, which makes him much more dangerous than, say, your average Bond villain or even Voldemort, who would who who was evil and terrifying, and that they, he kind of had no limit to what he would do. But here we know that he won't act outside of what his chessboard has been set, because it will ruin and reset his entire board, and he has to start over. Um, which we saw several times when they're like, "Why don't you just go get the boy?" And he's like, "No, he has to come to me. It has to play this way. I have to be patient. We have to do this the right way." Um, and so it, it'll 
it'll be interesting to see um, how we're able to sort of how we're able to manipulate his chessboard and and construct him. Um, I feel like he has to be his own demise Um, in order for this this to happen. He has to to do it himself. That has to be exposed for what he is and what his intentions are. And they have to find a way to convince all of these followers that the way he is telling them to do things is not the way to, to do things. Yeah, I, again, I, I think, you know, the the character that I thought most of is what he reminds me of is Palpatine from Star Wars. Yeah, I can totally see that. We just need the Jar Jar yeah. to his Palpatine. <laughs> <laughs> and as long as they don't talk like Jar Jar, it's okay. <laughs> oh, man. That was, oh. Um, okay. I will say, though, well, that the, main, the main, main, I know we're getting long here, the main... T- oh, no, it's fine. This one can go long, so. Sweet. The main twisty, turny point in this movie... I don't know how I feel yet. I think I saw part of it coming, but I, I think I have an alternative theory on, on what and who Credence actually is. Because I think okay. I agree with majority of the internet and that he's just straight up lying to Credence. Um, mm. I, I don't think he is Albus's um, brother. I think that that is too big of a historical rewrite. Um, we're already rewriting McGonagall, so I guess it wouldn't hurt to rewrite Dumbledore, but um, that's a big um rewrite there um so i i i think i have my own theory on what it is and i've read a few on the internet that kind of are in alignment so i'm not the only one um but i'd be curious theorize here because this is i think this is definitely as we're talking about if there is a quote-unquote question mark another dumbledore what do you think because i definitely think this is the thing where like it was like the empire strikes back everybody came out of that 1983 years like is vader lying is he really his dad he's got to be lying it can't be true that's exactly what's happening right yeah. now yeah i think this case he actually is lying um i think the only way he could actually be a dumbledore because i think it's possible for him to be a dumbledore i just don't think that brother is the relationship the more likely relationship there is nephew that he was um, his sister's son had in a similar fashion to Voldemort um, with a no with a muggle because if you remember Credence is kind of a squib at the beginning of this right no real strong magical um, affinity has to kind of be learned versus having a natural talent um, and uh, I feel like the obscurial the obscurial thing may also be like hereditary because we don't know that much about it. Um, and so it would make sense that he came from Dumbledore's sister and that would be about the right age as well. Um, because he's too young. He's just too young to be Dumbledore's, Mm -hmm. um, brother. There's no way his mom was dead by the time that credence would have had to have been born. Um, right. So there's just no possible way for him to actually be a brother without rewriting the entirety of the Dumbledore history, Mm -hmm. which I highly doubt she did because she thought long and hard about that. Oh yeah. I, I, do think he's lying. Um, I, I think that if you look at this this storyline um, that she set up, Grindelwald is an amazing liar oh, yeah. and a and and he's amazing um, illusionist. Basically, um, he is able to make you think one thing while completely doing something else. Um, I, I think you see that from the very first scene in the movie, basically where he's escaping and he's got his little kookaburra and he. He's like, oh, so needy. And he just throws it out the window. Like, he doesn't care about anyone. Um, And I think you really see, as we talked about in The Greater Good, when we were talking about that, he really is this father of lies. Like, 
He is using a tiny bit of truth and a whole lot of lies and wrapping them all up to get what he wants. He's the most calculating person in the series. But my theory is is that um, we know uh, from from her writings that Grindelwald was thrown out of Dummstrang for twisted experiments and near-fatal attacks on fellow students. So it seems like his M.O. to maybe do something really evil here, which um, we also know that Obscurus can exist outside their host. Newt had one in his case. So my guess is, is that he took the Obscurus from Ariana and to America to get away from, as far away from Dumbledore as he could. And he released it but after having done experience on it to have it bond with a child, that's why he doesn't know which child it is in New York, but he knows it's a child. Um, and that's why he's searching for this child the whole time. Um, and that would also make sense why Dumbledore would have some sense that something's going on um, because that's why he, he sent Newt to New York uh, on purpose. And so... I think it has something to do with that because in some ways then he is a brother because what was inside Ariana and what was a part of her is now a part of him. And so he's saying something that's kind of true from a certain point of view. Um, and therefore it would be quote unquote a brother to Albus, but not, not in the okay. way that I think everybody's kind of freaking out about. Well, and not in the way that credence is probably taking it to mean right? exactly yeah. um I, I do think that it's not the whole truth um i don't think we had our luke guy you know luke moment here we didn't have our empire moment um but i think that i think that there's a different connection there but i think it does tie back to the background right and uh, we know, or we we know from Harry Potter, and we allude from the, these particular films that Gwendolyn knows a great deal of the Dumbledore family in the background. Um, so for him to have the ability to know the information well enough to manipulate it, I think is a valid a valid point. Um, right. But well, and remember that Bagshot, Berth, uh, Bathilda Bagshot, the magical historian, is related to Grindelwald. So. He would know things maybe, and she was very close to the Dumbledore family. So like you're saying, she, he would probably know things about the Dumbledore family that maybe even the Dumbledores didn't ever yeah. remember. Well, and we so. we know that, um, you know, some something happened in which they, they formed this blood pact, which becomes a, a key part um, of why we now know Dumbledore cannot fight Gwendolyn. That's not about not wanting to mm -hmm. um, or picking sides. It's that he genuinely is unable to do so. Um, so it, it has some interesting turns and, and the twist there, I think, is still we still have more to come on what exactly that looks like. Oh, yeah. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how how she can convince us and credence of what that is there. And there's one thing here that I, I also think of are a part of Grindelwald's calculations. My theory is, is that he made the blood pack with Albus already knowing that Albus was not going to end up joining him the way he wanted. And he does this on purpose because he knows that that's my thought. 
Yeah, I think to an extent, I feel like he no, he is such a master manipulator. He knows that he'll only be able to manipulate Dumbledore for so long. Um, and I, I think if we take, if we leverage Dumbledore history we're familiar with from the final book of the Harry Potter series, um, I feel like we, I, I almost feel like this happened after Dumbledore's sister is destroyed in their battle. Um, and it's done as like a, okay, so horrible things happen when we do this. Let's never do this again kind of moment. Um, it's either that or, or they made the blood pact and then they tried to fight and terrible things happened. And now Dumbledore knows he can't do that again. But either way, I, I I agree. I think that Grindelwald knows that he won't be able to sway someone like Dumbledore, at least not long term. Um, and you know this is after this is still after his transition away and and I thought that the comment he makes to Newt early on about you know you don't value power you just value what's right um is is really true to Dumbledore and I feel like if you know his history you know how much that actually resonates with him and the sacrifices he had to make to learn that and how he must envy Newt for not having to endure those same sacrifices to live that way um to have learned that lesson um so I, I just think it's so fascinating it, and it'll be really interesting to see how this relationship sort of plays out, um, especially because I feel like I don't know who's going to be the aggressor here because Grindelwald is smart and that he's usually not the one to commit any of these crimes. Um, he has others do it for him. He did not kill any of the people in that house, nor did he technically order it. Um, he just sort of alluded to the fact that it would be nice to have to have that space, you know, um, so it, it would it would presume that he would not want to initiate or instigate any sort of physical altercation himself, um, for fear that it would sway his whole pacifist like argument. Um, so there's a, I think there's a lot to come. There's a lot to see and how this is going to sort of develop. Um, but there was a lot, a lot in this, including a couple of, uh, uh, including another cameo beyond uh, the Elder Wand. We get another Deathly Hollow nod um, with Nicholas Fumel in this one, who was very reminiscent to me of a Princess Bride character. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. He had this very like quirky, weird Billy Crystal like behavior mm-hmm. to him he did um, i like that i didn't even think of that but that's you're absolutely right um and i think he did a good job um and i like that he came out kind of powerful i would have liked to have seen maybe a little bit more of his standalone fighting and how that looked because they kind of talked it up and then didn't really deliver on it right like oh it's been 300 years since i fought or whatever and then or 50 years since i last you know was in a battle and they're like we have faith um and then he just kind of blends into the group of fighters. Um, so it kind of would have been nice to see his kind of spectacular power for a, a few moments before they become a group of power. Um, but I, I thought it was kind of a really interesting uh, turn and, and a nice use and nod back to the very, very first Harry Potter book um, by by including him and by having him be the, the safe house and the friend that Dumbledore knows. Um, I do kind of wonder if the symbol 
um, on the door of the safe house has anything to do with um, actually with Nicholas Flamel. And if we were to look back in any of the Harry Potter lore, if that symbol meant something and we kind of should have seen that coming or mm-hmm. and being like an uber uber fan to know that um, or if that was just sort of a made up symbol for the matter, the manner of this movie. Um, but yeah. Well, I do know that the symbol that's on the front of the book that he pulls out uh-huh. is a phoenix. Okay. So I'm thinking I'm... that that is the Order of the Phoenix yep. at this time, which I love that he's flipping through all those. And um, it's neat because in the screenplay, they actually tell you who it is that he's talking to. And it is a professor from Ilvamori. So we've actually met our very first Ilvamori professor, which I thought was really cool that Dumbledore, as they mentioned earlier, has all these international contacts. And I just thought that was a really neat little moment. To, to expand the breadth of the wizarding world and to see that this is yeah. an international matter, even more so than, than just the U.S. and now Paris and, you know, England and all that. So it's really expanding to all of these various worlds and showing how far the touch and how far this silver tongue, as they refer to it, really can reach. I, I think, you know, I, I, lo- I really enjoyed the Nicholas Fumel character. I thought he was really fun. And I think, again, it's one of those moments where, yes, you want more of him. And I think Joe is going to give that to us in the rest of this series. I think he'll play a part in it, which is great. I'm excited to see that. Um, you know, I I just love seeing more beasts, too, in this. Uh, I thought that they were all done really, really well. I mean, who doesn't love baby Nifflers? Um they were adorable, and I uh, the oh what is it? the kelpie that was in his uh, den downstairs uh, was amazing looking. I mean, I felt like they really worked hard to get these beasts to look great with the CGI, so that was really cool. Um, but I think the thing that you know re- I really responded to so much in this in the was. I think Jude Law is perfect as Dumbledore. I liked um, him. I think he did an excellent job. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I agree. I have no complaints. I think he outshined a lot of the characters. I think Eddie Redmayne gave him a little bit of a run for his money, but um, I also feel like he was holding back because he knows he can't o- overshine everything else, right? Like both the actor and the character. I think the character itself carries so much weight that it's very easy to kind of overshadow everything else and to overpower that seeing as he's already this powerful and respectable character, right? He already has status and we already buy it. Um, so there's no need to like oversell it. Um, but that I will say of everything in the film, I think the thing I least appreciated, um, was really the underuse of the female characters. Um, Tina basically could have not existed in this movie. She didn't contribute anything like, yeah, she did things, but overall the character really only existed to be Eddie Redmayne's love interest and not anything that sort of had her stand alone. Um, same, same with Queenie. And and I don't think it's going to play out this way at the end of the series, but in this film standing alone, um, Lita Lestrange did a lot, but also we don't really understand her in terms of, so she was in love with Newt and now she's marrying his brother and we don't know why or how or, or what happened. And she doesn't seem to want to, but she's making a choice. No one's forcing her to do it. Um, so it's just, 
it's confusing. So while you appreciate her sacrificing herself, you still sort of wished for more, more depth, um, beyond this sort of love for two men, um, to the character, you know, um, it just, it, they all felt all the women in this film in particular felt a little tropey. Um, and that's not something I usually expect from Rowling. I usually expect her to give her characters more than that. Um, so I'm really, really hoping as we go through the remainder of this series, we see her using those those characters more and giving them more of an opportunity beyond what they got in this film. Um, but I did sort of not appreciate the underutilization of the female characters beyond them enabling the male characters. So, you know, my two cents out there, I'll throw my little feminist rant out there. Um, I, I want to believe there's more, so I'm willing to give it a choice, but it was a very, very male heavy movie and it's a very, very white male heavy movie. While you had a couple of, of diverse characters, they felt more token and not diverse. So, um, that, that's not as much as I expect from her. She usually does a pretty good job with diversity. So that's again, where I feel like there was just too much going on for her to really focus on some of those things that I find important as a viewer, but, um, you know, don't always find their way. Yeah. I wish, you know, because I really like, you know, how much I love the character of Queenie. So this was a tough movie to watch her in yeah, because of the decisions that she makes. And feeling very, um, I, it felt tropey for her to make these sort of like, like desperate because they don't feel like she's making it, I don't know, they feel like they're making it for a man instead of for herself. I See, I didn't get that at all. I feel like that, as she says to Jacob, she says, I was the brave one. I was the one who had courage. I did what I did because I, I, I want what I want and what I want is you so yes she wants Jacob but it's not just about him it's about what she wants and so like she took action it's probably not the best action um, (laughs) or the wisest action but she takes that action and didn't feel like it was just about like Jacob it's about what she wants for her life which is she does want to be married and she wants to have a family and she wants that with Jacob, but she's not allowed to have it. And so but why I felt can't like she, she wants more than that. Like, why can't we create a character that wants that and more and has dreams and feelings outside of that versus her whole life being kind of driven by a, a male, a, a want for men's acceptance and stuff. And I mean, I get that it's the twenties and there's kind of a different feeling on that and that this housemaker and wife was a significant thing to women in the twenties, but not all women. And if we had gotten sort of a counterpart of Tina in that, because I do feel like that's the relationship with the sisters, right? That Queenie wants this traditional 1920s housewife thing. That's kind of just what she's always wanted. And then Tina has always been the career woman who wants more, but we didn't get the counterbalance in this movie. We didn't get both sides. We didn't get her, strong and, and and her focus on her career and driving that and not being distracted. We also had to give Tina a boyfriend, you know, like there was just a few things in here that I felt like didn't help me get strong female characters. It made them just things that were used to, to enable a plot for the men. So you you know I, I want more from it and I want to hope that she pull like she 
she pulls more out of these characters going forward um, because there are so many great things you can do with these women. I mean, I think that's part of the point is that Tina is such a strong character for Newt. She gets to be that strength that Newt doesn't have. Um, and that's part of that relationship is that there are a good counterbalance between those. But I also need these characters to stand on their own a little bit. So I'm hoping in the next film she can allow them to sort of stand to themselves because now Queenie is just a servant of Grindelwald, right? Again, just in service to that. So again, in service to another man. <laughs> so I- I'm hoping that, you know, Rosier will have her, her moment to, um, to stand on her own two feet and be the evil character that we need her to be, um, in her own way and not just as a devotee of Grindelwald, right? Um, so I'm hoping some of these characters get more as we go. And I hope the diversity of the cast, um, particularly the character's name is, is slipping my mind, but the other, um, the one who is Lita Lestrange's half brother, Uh, Yusuf, comma. Yes. I hope we see more from him because I think we can do more with his character, but I'm a little afraid now that he doesn't have revenge to seek that he'll sort of drift off into the nowheres because he no longer has a battle to fight. Um, I think Nagini is the only character of any sort of cult of any sort of diverse background or diversity standpoint that we might keep. Um, well, I know we'll keep her at least for a while. Um, <laughs> we'll keep we'll keep her for the next hundred years, guys. Um, the name should be a dead giveaway. Um, but I, I still think that uh, I want more. I want I want more from that perspective. Um, there, it was unnecessary in some ways to do some of the things she did, and that's probably why. Like to me, it feels like a book on, on film that didn't quite translate yeah. right. Yeah. I think I'm a little different because I feel like she's doing what serves the story and she's not trying to force what doesn't serve the story. Um, so I don't, I think that here, um, that this story just didn't happen to be, uh, as much about those characters, even though I still feel like, um, you know, Tina is a great character who tried to move on with her life when she thinks, you know, that, Newt's gone um, and she wants more and so she's going to keep doing her job to the best of her ability and and if and she happens to find somebody else too and like like she's moving on with her life you know I think that's commendable as a character she doesn't have as much to do in this movie but I also appreciate that the character that we do get here is somebody who's tenacious, who's shown to be good at her job um, and much more confident and capable in this movie than she felt like in the first movie. Like she feels like she's kind of leveled up in that sense. You know, she seems to become a much better or and a much more, and and a person who's much more in control of her emotions and everything, which I think is an interesting and, and a good aspect I disagree with you about Queenie in the sense that I don't think just wanting, I don't think anybody just wanting to be a mom and a, and a wife is a bad thing. If that's your choice, you're free to make it. It's your, it's what you want. Um, and as long as you get to make that choice, that's what all, all that matters, you know? And I, there's um, nothing wrong with that. I'm so. just saying we talked earlier about autism as representation. And if you're talking about the, the like any sort of female wants and needs and, and having that same representation, it wasn't broad. It was, we see the, the wife and mother and the romance and all of that in lots and lots of films. That's very well represented. This, the idea of her being more than that is not well represented. So 
and, and seeing that there's nothing wrong with the representation and it's not bad. It just wasn't, it wasn't balanced out with any other sort of representation. And as a woman, I'm kind of tired of seeing the woman only motivated by the man. Like there are so many other things that motivate other women. And there's, while there's nothing wrong with this desire to be a wife and a mother, we, we, we know like that's, 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 that's a known trope. And for me, that's where that turns into the, the trope, the trope, right. Versus a new character, a deep character, mm-hmm. uh, a character that represents beyond what she could be. Um, so while I said there's nothing wrong with it, I just, I wanted more from it. But I agree. You're right. It probably didn't serve this particular story, which is also why I'm willing to give it another go. Uh, Give it the other movies in the series, see what she does with them in the long run before I sort of draw my ultimate conclusion. Um, I feel like it's like reading half of a Harry Potter book or a third of a Harry Potter book and and drawing all your conclusions from those like four or five chapters. Um, You're never going to see the whole story yet. So until the whole story is wrapped up, I'm willing to hang in there with her. Um, It just as a standalone film was a little disappointing from that perspective. Yeah. I think that that's the thing that, you know, we've gotten so used to, and I think this is just part of our culture. We're so indoctrinated now with the binge culture that we just expect that we have everything now. And that's not, you know, even aside from like the, the Marvel movies, right. Or something like that, or something that's based off a comic book or whatever, um, it can be much easier to figure out where the story is going to go because it's based off a of source material still. Here, she's making this up whole cloth, pretty much. Like we said at the beginning, there are certain moments that we know that are going to happen. But on a whole, with these characters like Newt and Tina and uh, Theseus and, you know, all of these things, um, how, where and how, you know, Nagini turns into the snake that, is by Voldemort's side all the time. There's so much that we don't know and we don't know how it's going to happen. And like everybody, I think wants the answers now. And, you know, the other thing about this too, is that cinema itself has changed in the sense that we're much more comfortable with having serialized storytelling in, in movies like we do our television. And I think this is definitely a part of that where, you know, you can watch these movies separately, but obviously they connect together and meant to go in a series. And so, um, you know, there to me, it's, it's like a both and like it's a movie and I'm waiting for the next one. So, um, and part of that process and part of it for me the waiting is really fun just as it was with the Harry Potter series when I was reading it and you'd spend three years waiting her for her to release the next one. And those three years were spent talking with your friends about what was going to happen in the next one. And I've had so much fun with friends talking about this one, about what's going to happen and you know, what does this mean and all that stuff. And to me, that's really enjoyable. I, I have not had as many conversations or thought as much about a movie as I have this one in years. I hate that. I hate that is the part I hate about things. Like (laughs) I'm the person that doesn't particularly (laughs) like to watch current run stuff because I want to like look up what's going to happen next so I can set my expectations accordingly. So I'm the one who like I bought the seventh Harry Potter book the day it came out and read the entire book as soon as I bought it because I needed to know what happened. I wasn't going to wait anymore. I wasn't going to take my time. I wanted to know. I wanted, I wanted to 
to do it. I wanted to process it. I wanted to read it over again. Like it's just a very, I'm very different from that perspective. And I know that there's not a lot of people like that and that it's unique. And so for me, the waiting between movies is not enjoyable. It's like excruciating. I have to almost pretend like I don't know it's coming. (laughs) Like, I don't know that this happened. I'm just like, Oh great. Okay. I'm going to put this on a shelf and, and not watch it again until the third one comes out. And then I'll watch one and two and see three. Um, so it's just very, it's very different. I just, one don't want to see it i don't want to see it i will wait i like to wait till shows are like in syndication and then watch all of it <laughs> i know it's 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 i'm a weirdo it's fine no i'm no, fine I guys think, I, no 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 i, I I'm but just, the funny thing is though i don't think that you're weird because i think there are more people like you nowadays than there are like me you know i'm older and so <laughs> I am I'm that much older than, than me, you are. I just um, for me, it's a matter of time. I have I have limited time yeah. and limited efforts and and resources in order to commit to things. So before I commit to something, I, I want to know what I'm yeah. getting into, right? And I, I don't <laughs> I don't want to watch nine seasons of Lost to be pissed off the entire last season. You know what I mean? Like I don't I don't want to do that. Oh, I understand. I I don't have the energy to do that, so I have to be careful in what I choose to to get myself invested in. Um, so for mm-hmm. me, I. I I'll talk about the theories for a while after I I see it and then I have to just shelve it and forget that it exists until the third one is in theaters and then I'll pick it all back up again for a little while and then I'll shelve it all. You know, I just, I have Mm -hmm. to, I have to compartmentalize my interest in things. (laughs) Otherwise I just run out of, I run out of steam. Um, And it could be a, we could probably talk for a long time about how that's based on our binging culture and our, our instant gratification access that we have nowadays. But, um, Again, I, I am similar to some, I think different than others. I think a lot of people like um, the anticipation between films like yourself does. Um, so I think we'll just see. I, I want to see where she's taking the story. I desperately want to see where she's taking the story. It's a bummer. It's going to take another probably five years, years to get through the probably. next three films. But yeah, yeah. Um, but, but we'll see. We'll, we'll if- see. <laughs> If you, um, so what would you rate this one, do you think? Um, I think, um, because I have a theory that the second film in anything is always the worst. Um, and I think this held, held true to that one. Um, the second. So Empire Strikes Back is the worst, huh? Well, that's not technically the second one. I mean, it was the second in the trilogy, but. What I mean, it is the second movie that came out. True. Um, And it was the best. Well, we're not talking Star Wars here. No, I know. Gar- I'm just, Guardians you said it was 2 was the worst. You, I'm Iron just teasing you. You said worst. it was always the worst, and so I'm teasing you. Um, what else was the worst? The second Avengers, the Inconvenience of Ultron was the worst. Oh, yeah. Well, that was, yeah. Um, there's a handful but, of... But I mean, then there's a, there's Star Trek 2 is the best. There's a things where the second movie, Speed 2, <laughs> some of these... Oh, Speed 2 is Die the Hard 2. Movie. Like, there's just a lot Ugh. of, a lot of uh, historical backing for the second film in, in series being terrible. Um so I, I think that kind of holds true here. I think it's it's not as good as the first, um, and I think mostly that's because it's in it's enabling plot to continue, and it's a vital part of the series that isn't the most enjoyable part, but it's necessary. Um, so for that, I think I would give it six out of ten crimes. That would put you in Azkaban. I I really like this movie. I like that it's darker. It's bolder. 
in the sense that it's definitely not the same as the last movie. She She's not just trying to repeat what she did there. She's obviously got a story that she wants to tell, and she's telling it. And uh, I'm with you. You know, I think um, that there are things here that could have been done a, a little bit better. Um, I'm sure you would call out the story of the Lestrange's um, as a moment that you were comparing to the fourth Harry Potter book mm-hmm. of the info dump. Um, and, you know, I, I think, again, that's that's part of her style. And so I'm just used to it. But again, I, I do think that there that maybe there was a way to do that differently. Mm-hmm. So, but on a whole... I really enjoyed this movie and I enjoyed even see it. I I enjoyed seeing it again. And I kind of love the the fact that it's jam packed with stuff because it makes it worth rewatching, you know, and it makes it worth going back and like really digging into things and maybe picking up cues you missed the first time and all that kind of stuff, which I really enjoy that stuff. And so, and like her books, I feel like this series is dense. Um, And I, I personally enjoy, get enjoyment out of that and so i'd say this is seven out of ten um baby nifflers so <laughs> yeah um and is it worth uh, like is it you, worth your blood I mean, packed <laughs> yeah uh, no seven blood packs um i could not cut my hand open like that so seven unbreakable uh, no, I, curses or unbreakable uh, vows unbreakable vows yes um so uh which you know, a lot of people are making making comments about how that changed the way Unbreakable Vows are, and that. Um, but if you notice where he has those, they're on like above his wrist and everything. Which, if you've ever seen Snape's costume, Snape's costume comes all the way past his hands, basically. Yeah, so you it comes would never down know to, like, bottom of the palm, yeah, like exactly. It, on, on you would never have seen the that. base of your thumb. Yep. So. Um, and he keeps pulling it I, down throughout the rest of the series. Yep. <laughs> he does like a weird tucky thing. Yeah, this is, I, I mean, I'm right on the edge of my seat in the sense that I just, I'm, I even tweeted to JK the other day. I was like, uh, so Fantastic Beast 3, when's that coming? Basically, you know, like I am ready. I'm with you. Guessing early 2020 would be my guess. Yeah, probably. They probably so. did similar to this in the Harry Potters where they're filming several at a time. Yeah, the first one was in uh, 2016. So two so, years. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, this has been so much fun, though. I I really have, uh, as I'm sure people could tell, is just chomping at the bit to just sit down and talk through this one. As you can tell, he just so does much... not care, guys. It's just not for him. Not his cup of tea. Yeah, I just, I really, yeah. It's just, it's kind of rubbish. I don't really like it. Um, I don't like it. Uh, no, I love it. And um, I can't wait to hear what everybody else has to say about it there. Um, so, uh, you know, make sure you're hitting us up on Twitter, on Facebook, the Babel Conference, all those places. Uh, thank you so much to uh, Davis Grayson, Ken Tripp, Daniel Noah, and uh, Ryan Millette, who have been supporting the network through Patreon. And they're the associate producers here on the 602 Club. So really appreciate all of them for doing that. It means a lot that they would... Uh, Use their hard-earned money to support us and make sure all the shows keep coming to you each and every week. This is an expensive thing to put together Track FM every week. Um, all the shows coming out, all the bandwidth, everything happening, got to pay for the website, all of that stuff. So 
If you want the shows to keep coming to you, go over to patreon.com slash trekfm. Every little bit helps a month. Um, We have some great contribution levels as well with some great perks like being an associate producer on your favorite show and things like that. Buying us a butterbeer while we record. Yeah. All of the above. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yes, go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can be part of our team uh drea it is always very fun to have you back especially when we're talking about another part of the wizarding world but if anybody wants to catch up with you uh where can they find you online um you can follow me on twitter at pcf chick or on instagram at drea kaufman and it's c-o-f-f-m-a-n um i will have incoming thanksgiving photos from our harry potter themed thanksgiving um so you have actually something in the universe to look for forward to um there especially my adorable daughter all dressed up in her little gryffindor outfit in fact she's sleeping in a little snuggle this muggle onesie right now so so cute um you have all of that that fun wizarding stuff to look forward to there um so yeah or you can find me with mr matthew rushing here um on the nerd party where we do the owl post which is going chapter by chapter through the Harry Potter books. We've just recently started Order of the Phoenix, so we are about about halfway through the entire series. Uh, four books down, but about halfway the halfway mark. So um, if you are a fan of this universe, come check it out. We do no spoilers, so hopefully if you've never read the series, which I don't imagine we'll get a lot of that on this podcast, but um, if you haven't, uh, you can join us going chapter by chapter, or if you have and just really enjoy, um, you can come dive in a little deeper with us. And I hope you will, because it is a lot of fun to do. Uh, You can find me here on the network with Chris Jones talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine and the Orb. I'm also on the Nerd Party Network as well, Um, not just on Outpost, but on Aggressive Negotiations, talking about Star Wars each and every week with John Mills. And then I'm doing uh, Cinema Stories with my good friend Courtney as we talk about films through the lens of faith. But thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? (laughs) 